This is, I would imagine for many of you, one of your favorite times of the year, and it is for me as well, and not just because people wear red to church and I can pretend that you're all L fans, you know, and I, but, but it really is, it, it's, it's a very special time of year, and, and one of my favorite things about this time of year is some of the, the classics that are on television. And I happen to be a lifelong Snoopy fan, and so my favorite is the Charlie Brown Christmas. And, and maybe you are so familiar with the story, you know that Charlie Brown gets so frustrated with all the materialism. And interesting, of, of, you know, it was made 40 or 50 years ago, and, and the times have not changed that much, obviously, and only gotten worse. But, but he, he laments all the materialism, and he's so upset, and, and Lucy you know, tells him to go out and get the, the biggest shiny aluminum Christmas tree that he can find, and he brings back this pitiful-looking little tree, and this one's so much more beautiful than that. And, and it would be great if, if, the, if we had a Charlie Brown tree that would make my example really good. But, but he, he brings back this little tree, and, and they just get all over him. And he, he just wonders out loud, doesn't anybody know what Christmas is all about? And Linus, you got to love Linus. You know, he, he, he's the, the kid with the blanket, but full of so much wisdom. You know? and, and all he does is quote Scripture, and he says this, and I've got a King James Version to, to quote Linus. They were in the same country, shepherds, abiding in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And he walks over to Charlie Brown and he says, That's the true meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown. But I, I wonder for, for many of us here, if that's not where the story stops... I wonder if, if yes, we love that story and all, oh, we love to hear Linus repeat it every Christmas. But I wonder if for some that's where it stops. I, I really believe that for most people that is the end of the Christmas story. That's it. Jesus is a baby in the manger. What a warm feeling we get this time of year because of that. For many in our world, and I unfortunately believe even many Christians, that's the end. That's it. Maybe Christians, we're, we're just happy that they still show stuff like that on TV. <laughs> They're still willing to put it out there. But, but I, I just wonder, and, and I'm saddened sometimes to know that it's true, that for some, that's the end of the story. I think we often miss the point of this story because it's so familiar. Some of you are probably quoting right along with me. Those verses that you've heard so many times that Linus quotes so eloquently. I can't do it like Linus can. But we, we're so familiar with the story. We often miss the point of what the incarnation, as it's known in the theological world, the incarnation, God becoming a man. We miss the point of that story. But it's the greatest miracle the world has ever witnessed. The greatest miracle that the world has ever known. God coming from heaven to become one of us for a short period of time to dwell on this earth and to die for our sins. And yet for many it stops right there in Luke chapter 2. I think we need a refresher course on what it's all about. 
And this morning, I hope to present to you what the Incarnation is all about, what God becoming a man really means and its implications and its byproducts. And though the Charlie Brown Christmas story is a wonderful story and one of my favorites, the story of Jesus coming to earth is much bigger than that. The Incarnation, as you'll see if you want to follow along on the back of your bulletin, the Incarnation teaches us a very simple but extremely profound and important truth that in Jesus, God came near to us so we could come near to Him. God came near to us in Jesus so that we could come near to Him. It's an incredible truth that really should never get old, though it often does because of our familiarity with the story. It has extremely powerful implications and byproducts that have direct application for our lives today. The story of Jesus is not one to simply be told at Christmas and sort of looked upon as a nostalgic, good-feeling kind of time, but it is one that today can have impact in your life. Because Jesus not only came to earth in human form, not only did He die, but He was resurrected. And He still lives, which means He still has power And He still has power for your life today. I want to read you this story again. And this time, if you want to follow along with me, I'm in Luke chapter 2. The words will appear on the screen. And I want us to observe all the details that you can take in as as I read you this story. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This, this first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. So they're, they're taking a census for tax and military purposes and so on. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough. Many versions would say manger. Because there was no room for them at the inn. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified." But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior, who is Messiah, or Christ the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was, with the, the, suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the feeding trough. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring all these things up in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as they had been told. Let's go straight to Bethlehem, they said, and see what has happened, 
which the Lord has made known to us. Let's go see what has happened because God has come to earth. Let's go see what this is all about, which God has made known to us. I hope this morning that we can see what has happened and why it really matters for our lives today. That in Jesus, God came near to us so that we could come near to Him. There are some very powerful byproducts of that simple truth. And I want to show you this morning what some of those are. One of them is that in Jesus, God gets on our level. In Jesus, God gets on our level. I've got four young children. My oldest is eight. We have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old. I'm not very tall, but I'm tall to them. So if you've dealt with children whatsoever, you know that what you need to do in order to communicate with them is not to get as high up as you possibly can. Now, I'm still not real tall, am I? But not to get up as... (laughs) Some of you are already thinking that. Not to get up as high as you can and have them below you so that you can tell them all that you want to tell them and they will automatically listen. What do you do instead? You get down as low as you can and you kneel down and you get as close to the ground as you possibly can. Now, I'm built low to the ground. This is not hard for me. (laughs) But you talk to them face to face. You get on their level to help them understand what exactly are you talking about. And isn't it interesting to see their eyes light up And they realize that you're talking to them where they are. In Jesus, God gets on our level just like that. It says that He had a very humble birth. I I love this. There's no room at the inn. Now, we lament the innkeeper. What's wrong with the innkeeper? Doesn't he know Jesus is there? The point is not about the innkeeper. The point was they couldn't find a suitable place for the baby to be born. They just went wherever they could. They went to a place that had a manger, a feeding trough. We don't know exactly what that looked like. We get some pictures of it this time of year because we have all these nativity scenes and we like to create, you know, create these different things in our mind. But the point is not about the, the scene that Jesus was born in. The point is he had no place to be born and to be laid except in a manger. He had nothing. The New Testament records that Jesus had no place to lay his head. Ever. Realize Jesus was homeless. Sort of puts an interesting spin on our version of Christianity sometimes, but I find it interesting. Jesus, born of humble nature, wrapped in cloth, just like any other baby, he's born to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. Such an unusual birth for a king. Wrapped just like any other baby, not in royal colors and the finest linen available in all of, of Israel, just wrapped in cloth. In a mundane place, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is legendary now, but do you realize it's just a small village? Just a, a small village, not even quite a suburb of Jerusalem, but close, I suppose. Just really small. Nothing spectacular about it. Jesus, in His humble nature, getting on our level, comes not descending from the sky as the King of kings and Lord of lords, but born as a baby. Now, some here were born grown up. I understand that. But the rest of us were born as little babies, just like Jesus was. Getting on our level, frail, dependent, 
a temporary resident of this world, just like all of us. Jesus empties himself, Philippians 2 says, of all the glory that he had in heaven, the angels worshiping him 24 hours a day, and he gets on our level to show us who God is. To love us, to die for us, he comes and empties himself, and his humble birth shows that. Then the angels show up, and they don't go to the king. I love this part. Where do they go? To the random guys on the side of the hill keeping the sheep. Guys that nobody would associate with, by and large, because they couldn't keep themselves ritually clean according to the law, because why? They're always with the dirty animals. And that's who the angels go to. To announce the birth of the king to ordinary people just like you and me. In the book of Luke, Luke the writer presents... Jesus is going after the poor and the lowly. The ordinary people. That's who Jesus relates with. That's who the angels show up with. These ordinary shepherds are the recipients of the news first before anyone else. And and later, who does Jesus choose to be His disciples? Ordinary, the Bible says, uneducated people. Just normal folks. I love that part. God uses here, we see in Luke 2, the ordinary, the poor, the obscure, Joseph, Mary, Bethlehem, shepherds, to change the world forever. I don't know where you are this morning or what you're feeling about your life, how God might want to use you or if He's forgotten you, if He doesn't care about you because you're poor, you're ordinary, you're mundane, it's just routine. I just get up and do the same thing over and over and over again. I wonder what Jesus would have to say about your mundane, routine, ordinary life, i got a feeling He'd say, that's exactly who I came for. The Incarnation proves that God gets on our level, that He's not a God of isolation. Those who are elite in our society, those who are rich and famous, are untouchable. You ever seen that, that kind of setting? You ever, you ever been somewhere where a famous person is? I was last weekend, Friday and Saturday, at what they call Reds Fest. Now, if my comments about the University of Kentucky didn't upset you enough, I also have to tell you that I am a diehard Cincinnati Reds fan, which means that uh, in some ways I do have sympathy for those who are Cardinal fans here and lament the leaving of Albert Pujols. In other ways, I just celebrate. Yeah, he's gone, you know. But uh, we don't have to deal with that guy anymore. But I went to Reds Fest last weekend with my son, uh, Hank, and my dad. And the Reds players were all there. Now, some of them aren't very famous, okay? I mean, he's not, nobody's Albert Pujols. But it was interesting to note how, yeah, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Danny. He's be at the piano playing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, but it was interesting to note how the players, when, when they're moving from place to place, were generally kept, kept off limits. Even though they're sort of in the crowd, they, they appeared to be like they were part of the crowd, but everybody there knew they weren't part of us. They're different than us. Not only are they more talented, but they got a lot more money than anybody who came and paid all kinds of money to be there. It's interesting to note how secluded they were. And I'm sure they're all good guys. I don't have anything, any reason to think anything bad about them. But I love the fact that God, the God of the universe, in all of His glory in heaven, did not remain in isolation. But what did He do? He came to earth. He got on our level. He took a step that we cannot take. 
He came down to earth because we cannot climb to heaven. He got on our level. He did it in such a way that we can understand Him and proves that He understands us. God came near to us so we could come near to Him and in doing so He got on our level. But not only that, but in Jesus, God solves our impossible problem. In Jesus, God solves our impossible problem. One of my favorite movies is Apollo 13. Some of you were alive during that time and you remember watching on the news the incredible circumstances surrounding this mission to the moon that was never really meant to be. They came across an impossible problem because they were losing oxygen where they were and it was filling up with carbon dioxide and yet they had no way to filter the air to make sure that it was clean. The only way they could do it was to rig something essentially by putting a square peg in a round hole. And the movie Apollo 13 centers around this tension. Will they be able to clean the air or not? An impossible problem. God recognized our impossible problem of sin. Our world doesn't like to talk about sin these days, but if I'm going to preach the Bible to you, it's kind of hard to avoid. (laughs) We have an impossible problem called sin. We are dead, the Bible says, in our sin. And without outside help, we have no hope whatsoever. We are a square peg trying to go in a round hole and we cannot get there apart from Jesus Christ. And only in Him is our impossible problem solved. Because the impossible problem not only includes our sin, but the wrath of God against our sin. God hates it. And God will punish sin. And yet, even in that... The Bible says that He was pleased to pour out all of His wrath on Jesus Christ so that we could escape it. Let that truth sink in for just a second. As believers in Jesus Christ, if that's you, you have escaped the wrath of God for all eternity. Not because of how good you are, but because Jesus came to earth and in Jesus God solves our impossible problem. And only in Him... You say, well, yeah, that's great, but I'm going to try this, this, and this. Good luck. (laughs) It's not going to work. Only in Jesus can our impossible problem be solved. This is the core reason that Jesus came. Not just to show us who God is, but to save us from our sins. Both the sins we committed before conversion and the ones we've committed since. Those sins, too. To do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Try as you may, you can't save yourself. You cannot pay the price that God demands. You cannot satisfy the wrath of God, neither can I. Only Jesus can do that, and He's done it. (laughs) And He did it once and for all, praise God. And we don't have to for those who believe in Jesus. He solves our impossible problem. He paid for our sin. He satisfied the wrath of God. And in Him, God forgives us. Not because of us, but because of Him. Apart from Him, our impossible problems still exist. So I challenge you to go through Him alone. Don't believe what the world tells you. That you can get there on your own. You just be good enough. Surely to goodness, God would not send good people to hell. Don't believe the lies. Only in Jesus can we have forgiveness from our sin and life for all eternity. In Jesus, God solves our impossible problem. Also in Jesus, God meets our deepest needs. 
God meets our deepest needs. He solves our impossible problem. The the shepherds were told today a Savior has been born, and also He meets our deepest needs. In the early to mid-1900s, there was a psychologist named Abraham Maslow. Some of you may be familiar with with his work. Uh, He worked on what he called the hierarchy of, of human need, or a theory on human motivation. And what Maslow uh, theorized, and others have have argued with him, was that there are some very basic needs and then there are some other needs that, that humans have. And that all human motivation, he says, is directed toward having those needs met. And met as quickly and as often as they possibly can be met. In 1943, he produces his work, and he suggests that there are several levels of these needs. Things like physiological, the need to breathe... Pretty basic need, is it not? The need to breathe. The need for food. The need for water. The need for sleep. For kids, I say amen. You give me some more of that. He, he moves to the next level and he says there's a need for safety. He says security of body. Keep yourself safe physically. Employment. Some of you have been through the very difficult uh, time of losing a job, and you know what a, what a great need it is to have security in your job. Job security is a major need. Security of, of resources. Safety uh, when it comes to morality and, and knowing that, that uh, things are going to be done the right way and so on. Safety in your family. Safety in health. Safety of your property. And then he moves on to another and he says there's this need of love and belonging. Talking about friendship and family and relationships and all the things that go in with that. To be loved, to belong somewhere. He moves then higher and he says there's another set of needs and it's built on on esteem, self-esteem, confidence, the ability to achieve something, to be respected by other people and to have respect for others. And finally he moves to a level he calls self-actualization. And he talks about morality and creativity and spontaneity and the ability to, pro- to solve problems and, and, and to accept facts and to reason and so on. In our world, we're very aware of these kinds of needs and psychologists have talked for years about how we can best meet all of those needs. Humans are going to seek to have these needs met and when they're not met, it produces anxiety. And tension. Some of you can relate. Some of us here deeply understand that. But what psychology cannot provide is the true meeting of all of those needs. And it's only in Jesus that God provides all that we need to have all of this met for us. To breathe. The Bible says God has breathed the breath of life into us. Our next breath is dependent on Him. He meets our need for food, for water, for security, for love, for esteem, for all that goes into life. The setting that the shepherds are, are in, that Joseph and Mary are in during this time, is full of need. They faced problems. They had conflicts. There was poverty, injustice, oppression. They lived with fear. They lived, believe it or not, with high taxes, high unemployment. They lived with a lack of morality. There was a struggle to meet all of the needs that they have. Their world is not that far away from ours. Caesar Augustus 
the, the ruler here, the emperor mentioned in this particular passage, had been hailed as, as a prince of peace because he ushered in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And yet I find it interesting that a, a philosopher during the time said this, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than ever, more, than, more, more so rather than even for outward peace. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even outward peace. The emperor of the time, hailed as someone who can meet your needs, bringing peace to Rome. And yet even he, according to even the secular philosophers, cannot do that. What's the answer to all that? In verse 10, But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. <laughs> for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today what? A Savior, who is Messiah, Christ the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people He favors. God's answer? Don't be afraid. All your needs are met in Christ Jesus. There's nothing to fear when God moves in grace, He tells the shepherds. There's good news of great joy. A Savior has been born. Not a Savior as the world wants to call it. Maybe during this time there were doctors and rulers and philosophers all called saviors, but the angel announces the real Savior has entered the scene. He is Christ. He is the Messiah, the one commissioned by God to die for our sins. He is Lord. Luke, up until this point, had been using the name of Yahweh, which is Lord, and he uses that for Jesus. He is the ruler. He says, glory to God and peace on earth. Nothing can meet our deepest needs here on earth. Nothing at all. Some can testify to that. You've exhausted every, every option that you can think of to have your needs met. You've tried different jobs. You've tried different relationships. You've tried whatever it can be. And still you're empty. The folks during this time realized that no emperor... No ruler, no soldier, no doctor, no philosopher could bring them the peace, the satisfaction in life they were looking for. They knew it wouldn't be brought by Roman law or Greek philosophy or even Jewish religion. And ours will not even be brought, folks, by, by attending church. As much as I love that you're here, your deepest needs cannot be met merely by your presence here, but only by the presence of the Lord here. That's it. In Jesus, God meets all of our needs, all the ones that Maslow studied and all the ones that we can't even articulate. He meets them all. He meets them all just like a shepherd would. I find it interesting that He shows up to shepherds. Jesus would eventually be the sacrificial lamb. It's, it's assumed by many who study this that the shepherds, being so close to Jerusalem at the time, were raising sheep that eventually would be sacrificial lambs. It's sort of, you see the parallels that God is drawing. Jesus would later call Himself the Good Shepherd. And He meets our needs just like a shepherd. I have a, I have a friend who, for a period of time, was a shepherd. 
Now this is, this is modern times. Okay? I didn't go back in time. I, this is modern times. I have a friend. His name is Caleb. And Caleb, for a short period of time, was a shepherd. Now, if you know Caleb, that would not surprise you at all. It's just right up his alley. You know people like that? Just kind of, he's a, he's a very uh, adventurous kind of guy. He's just fun-loving. And he's decided for a short period of time, I'm going to go be a shepherd. So he went to Montana. And became a shepherd. I'm lying to you. I asked him this week. I sent him a message. I said, Caleb, I'm going to be talking this week about the shepherds. Tell me some things about shepherds. Here's what he wrote. I guess one thing about shepherding is that it hasn't changed much over the centuries. The important thing, now follow this. Think about how Jesus meets our needs as our good shepherd. The important thing is just to stay with the sheep. To encourage them toward places with better grazing, protect them from predators, and make sure that they stick together. Isn't that interesting? I didn't ask him. I just said, look, I'm talking about shepherds. Tell me about shepherds. I didn't say preach. But here he goes. One thing I want to say is that the hours are long. I was on my feet walking around for at least 14 hours each day. It gets dark really late in Montana in the summer. You could probably, he says you could probably still play catch at around 11 o'clock or so. It's, it's very bright. So we'd usually graze from something like 7 to 9. Some days were shorter, but 14 hours wasn't uncommon. It's really hard to measure this kind of stuff, especially when the walking is usually in big semicircles around the flock. But I imagine I walked something like 15 to 20 miles a day. There isn't much rest, really. After a few weeks, I learned little tricks that would buy me some time to lay down or eat some food or read, but you couldn't lose focus for too long. It was such a funny, great life, but also hard. As you can imagine, there are no days off either. Think of it in, in the context of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. I'll leave you with a few interesting things about sheep. They always graze uphill. Always. Even when you lead them to the luscious grass in a deep valley, they'll eat for five seconds and start grazing up the ridge again. <laughs> we just like them. Sheep. Lambs really do know their mother's voices, and vice versa. They found one another in my band of 600 sheep with amazing efficiency time and time again. There's scripture about that, by the way. Just before sunset, the lambs and I would break off from the group and play the, these leaping games. The parents would all go lay down while the young ones ran around in circles and tried to sneak up on one another to leap over them. It was one of the more surreal, funny things I had ever seen. What an interesting take on what shepherding is all about from someone who's experienced it. And Jesus shows up to shepherds as the sacrificial lamb and the good shepherd. And that's how he meets our needs, just like a shepherd does. The Bible teaches that we are all like sheep who have gone astray. We need a shepherd. Jesus came upon the crowds and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were lost like sheep without a shepherd. And he came to meet our needs in only a way that a shepherd can. The Lord is what? My shepherd. I shall not want. What? He, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Do you get the picture of what Jesus wants to do in your life? As your good shepherd, he came near to us so that we could come near to him. And in so doing, he meets all of our deepest needs. And also, in Jesus, God displays the fullness of his grace and his truth. You've heard it said before that God works in what? Mysterious ways. You realize that's not from a Bible verse, but from a poem? Now, there are hints in the Bible that we sure don't know all that God is up to. 
I wouldn't stand here before you with confidence and say, let me tell you everything God is doing, because I know. Because I don't. (laughs) But in Jesus, we get a very clear picture of who God is and what He's doing, what He's about. Some would say, well, God works in mysterious ways. Just can't know Him. The Bible argues differently. That God has always been revealing Himself. And in Jesus, we get the full picture. We get who God is and we get what He's about. If you look at Jesus, you see God. If you look at Jesus, you see the full display of God's grace and His truth. And some miracles along the way. The button's actually in the back. That was good, though. You know, it's good. If I'd been expecting that, we'd have been all right. <laughs> That's good. We get the full display of His grace and His truth. As I said before, many people stop with what Linus said in the Charlie Brown Christmas. They leave Jesus in the manger, but you realize that's only the beginning of the story? <laughs> what a wonderful story it is. But it's only the beginning. The New Testament goes on to display Jesus as God's agent of grace. We'll see Him later on, if you study His life, with sinners, with lepers, tax collectors, prostitutes, the outcast. People would insult Him by calling Him a friend of sinners. (laughs) The display of God's grace. Later on the cross, we see the full measure of God's grace and the death of Jesus for sinners. His offer of salvation to all who believe. He's also the display of God's truth. Look in verse 15 of Luke 2. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 16 confirms it. They hurried off and what? And found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. God, true to His word. Don't miss that part. The angel says, you go and you'll find the baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a feeding trough. They say, let's go check it out. And what do they find? God was true to His Word. Later in the Gospels, we see more of God's truth. As I've mentioned, God's wrath on sin, but God's love for sinners. We see Jesus, the embodiment of truth, as the good news. Jesus would call Himself the way, the truth, and the life. Grace, the truth of Jesus, didn't end at His birth, didn't end at His death, didn't end at His resurrection, and didn't end at the moment of your conversion, if you're a believer in Jesus. It continues to this day. What do you do as a result of all that? This isn't a story to say, oh, well, that, that's nice. I'm, I'm glad we heard the Christmas story this morning. God in Jesus coming to earth demands a response from us. Not a nostalgic, warm, fuzzy response, but a real, life-altering response. So what do you do in response to that? You build your life around who Jesus is and what He has done. What do I do in light of the truth that in Jesus, God came to earth to be near to me so I can be near to Him? What do I do? You build your life around who Jesus is and what He has done. The shepherds go back to check it out. And then they return, it says, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as they had been told. You know what they did? They went back to the sheep, back to the mundane, back to the ordinary, as totally different men. Because they had met Jesus. 
They began, it, it says here, to glorify and praise God, building their life on who Jesus is and what God had done and will do through Him. And we're no different when it comes to building our lives. You and I are each building our lives on something. And I would guess that because of your presence here that you think that God might be someone that you ought to try at least a little bit to build your life upon. But I wonder, if we're honest, what are we really building our lives on? What person, what job, what event, what set of circumstances are we really building our lives on? Because each of us are building our lives on something or someone. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 7 that the only legitimate foundation for our lives is Jesus Christ. Building our lives upon the rock. Everything else, the Bible says, when storms come and the rain pounds and the winds blow against that house, will knock it down. So build your life on who Jesus is and what He has done. Receive life from Him today. There are some, I, and I know this, and I had a conversation about it this week, and I don't have anybody in particular in mind when I say this. There are some I know because I just know church people <laughs> that come every single week and have yet to receive life from Jesus Christ. You're doing all you can to get to God and have failed to realize that He's already come to you. And you simply need to receive life from Him. You can't conjure it up in your own mind, in your own heart. Receive it from Him. And build your life on Him. Some today just need to admit, Lord, You know where I am and I know where I am. And let me confess my sin to You. And Lord, You know that I'm not very close to You. But I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ who has come near to me for my only means of coming near to God. Others here today need to stop trying to build our lives on other things. We try so many things to get to God. We try reason. We try morality. We, we try doing all the right things. We try legalism. If I just follow all the rules, maybe I'll be okay. We try religion and religious systems. None of those things can get you to God. And none of those things can keep you close to God. Only Jesus Christ can get you and keep you close to God. Some of us this morning, we have counted on, on Jesus for salvation. And then after that, we've counted on everything else to try to keep us close to God. And the word from the Lord this morning is count on Jesus, not just for your salvation, but also to keep you close to God, near to Him as you move forward. So when you sin, don't count on trying to make up for it. I'm going to do a bunch of good things. I'm just going to feel really guilty for a long period of time. And maybe then God will be satisfied with me. Count on Jesus Christ, who paid the debt once and for all. This morning, I just want to challenge you to follow Jesus like the shepherds did. Run to Him. Run to Him. Go check out what God has done. And return a very different person glorifying and praising God, telling about what He has done in your life. Build your life around who Jesus is and what He has done. Let's pray together.
This morning you may need to receive life from Jesus Christ for the very first time. And you may shock everybody by that admission. So be it. Because those people can't get you to God. Only Jesus Christ can. Receive Him today. Receive life from Him today. The Bible says you do that by repenting and believing. Repenting. Lord, I'm a sinner and I turn from it. And Lord, I believe in Jesus Christ. The Son of God is my only hope for salvation. Please take over my life. Or maybe like the shepherds this morning, you just need to praise and glorify God for who He is and what He has done. Lord Jesus, we give You praise and glory for coming to earth in so much more than a Charlie Brown Christmas story. Thank You for the implications and the byproducts. May we build our lives and our church on who You are and what You have done. Change us today before we leave. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.